welcome to Forward, the podcast where we take research to new heights. I'm your host, Alison Innes, and each episode I bring you a conversation with one of our researchers from Brock's Faculty of Humanities. This episode, we are heading up to the 10th floor of Brock's Schmann Tower, at least metaphorically, to visit virtually Brock's Archives and Special Collections and the head of Archives and Special Collections, David Sharon. There are some great views of Niagara from up there, and uh, I know that uh, our guest can certainly confirm that, but there are also some amazing books and artifacts on those shelves as well, and that's what we're really excited to talk about today. So David is the head of Archives and Special Collections, and in that role he works very closely with our students and researchers to help them with their various projects, and he's joined me today to talk about what he does as an archivist and some of the projects he's been involved in. Welcome. Hi, Alison. Thanks for having me. This is fun. It's great to have you. So let's start at the beginning. What's an archive? <laughs> That's, a, yeah. That's a big question. <laughs> and I start every presentation with this, so I should be ready to go. Uh, yes, an archive is a an archive is a collection of records that no longer have active use for the individuals or organizations who maintained and collected them, but they still have historic or evidentiary value. And we hope people will say. There's some value. Uh, there's some good worth in these records, and they should belong somewhere so people can learn and use them. And our job is to make sure people can find what they want when they are doing their research. Now, an archive isn't just loose bits of paper and photographs, as I have learned. You do have books, and you do have some objects as well. So, what's kind of the difference between a, an archive and a museum or an archive and a library? That's awesome questions. So oftentimes in the library, you'll get secondary source material. And all that is written with primary source, which is what you'd find in an archive. So where a book is published and there might be a thousand, ten thousand copies of that one work, an archival record, there's usually just one. And if that is ever destroyed or goes missing, that information is gone forever. So our job is to make sure that these rare, unique things are available to anyone as long as possible, as long as we can maintain it, uh, which we hope are hundreds of years. And the difference between a museum and an archive is an archive really deals with the content of the records, while a museum can also have archival materials, absolutely, but they are also into the material culture, the three-dimensional objects, which has a whole other means of storage and processing. So always think of an archives as really the information behind all the history that is written. Um, that's what we're in charge of. And for those who might not have um, taken an introduction to history course, um, the primary and secondary sources or documents. So primary are the ones that are produced by the people at the time of whatever the event is that you're, the event or the person or that you're studying. And secondary is what other people have written about it. Exactly. Yes. So for us in the archives, primary source would be someone who wrote a diary about what happened that day or letters from a daughter to a father in another city. Uh, nowadays, we carry our archives in our pockets with our text messages and our videos and our photos. Uh, that's an archive and it travels with us every day. So even though the media has changed, the content and information is the same as it was 150 years ago. 
That's really interesting. I'm going to bookmark that and come back to that um, because that is definitely um, interesting to think about how, how these things are changing and, and um, our access to and interaction with, with things. So what do you do as an archivist? Uh, yeah, the job varies, which is one of the funnest parts of uh, working in an archive. So for my job, a lot of it is thinking about what to acquire next. Uh, I talk with a lot of potential donors. So most of our materials are donated to Brock. So I'm out in the community seeing what collections are available. And a collection can be a single item. Uh, you know, It could be a, a letter or a diary or a report or something like that. Other collections can be 30 boxes of materials that an organization has kept in the closet for 50 years. So we go out in the community, we look at the materials, see if there is that research value that we want here at Brock. And if we can uh, work things out with the donor, it gets uh, transferred to us. And then our job as archivist is to make sure the organization is always maintained uh, as the originator had it, but we describe and put everything in asset-free folders uh, to help with the preservation and then make it accessible to uh, the faculty, students, and other researchers that come here. So you had a couple of big donation collections come in um, just in the summer, I think. Well, I say just the summer, it's January. <laughs> Last summer, um, you had a collection of some rare books, I believe, yes. that came in. And then you also had a really fantastic local history-related uh, collection. So do you want to tell us a little bit about those? Sure. And maybe what the process was um, to get those ready for researchers to use. Absolutely. So the book collection was donated to us from the estate of Jack and Mary Jane Miller, who were two faculty members here at Brock University. And I believe it started in 2010. Jack Miller, who was still working here, says, said, told us in the library, I have this fantastic rare book collection. I'm not ready to get rid of all of it. I will give you a few a year, uh, and then eventually you'll have it all. Unfortunately, he passed away about four years ago, but his wife, Mary Jane, who was in communications, I believe, uh, you know, she stayed in the house and the library was intact and well taken care of, and she recently passed away. And uh, the nephew, who was the executor of the estate, found the inventory of the materials that Jack intended to donate to us. So he contacted me. I went over to the house, and we went through. The, their house was like a library. There was books, shelves of books in every room. And we just went over everything and found the books that were on the list. And we were welcome to take other things. So we, I had a wonderful conversation with him, talked about his aunt and uncle and a wonderful person. And now these books are here at Brock and available to our students. And they've already been used even before they are cataloged. Uh, Leah Knight in English was very, very happy to have it because most of these books were from the 1500s and 1600s, uh, which is right in their wheelhouse. Uh, there's even, even a printed uh, Shakespeare play in there from the 1640s, which wow. is, it blew my mind to actually see and hold it because you only hear about these things. So Jack had a wonderful eye for these things, and it's a, a fantastic resource And uh, because we took on so many books. Uh, we're still cataloging it right now, but uh, everything is up in the archive, nice and safe. And the other uh, large archival collection that we got is the St. Catherine Standard Niagara Falls Review newspaper collection. 
and this consists of the vertical subject files that were maintained by these newspapers. So they had a librarian who would clip every day every article that would be in the newspapers and slot them into these subject files. And they would also put photographs in there and other research notes that the reporters might have used uh, to write their stories. And these have been amassed over decades. Uh, I think the earliest materials we found in the collection so far started in the 1910s all the way up to the 2000s. So about 90 years of local history in these two newspapers. It was 260 plus boxes when we took it all in. Uh, so it is a big collection. It's gonna take us years to describe it, uh, but it is accessible to our students who wanna use it. And it would save our researchers hours and days, even weeks of research, because looking through a newspaper on microfilm, it's necessary work sometimes, but it can be very tedious. And with this collection, if you wanted to look up uh, a major event like the Port uh, Robertson Bridge Collapse, there's a file on that. And instead of looking through what newspaper, what date, and what the follow-ups were, it's all there in one folder for someone to, oh, that's to see. Fantastic. Or if you're looking up individuals or other happenings in the area over the last 90 years, uh, there's a good chance that we have it in there. So that's a very exciting uh, collection that we have that uh, is gonna be a boon for all researchers who are interested in Niagara. So for the pre-Google days, um, <laughs> if the newspaper wanted to know, you know, like for a, for a future article or something like that, and have that information accessible to them as part of their work, they have to kind of curate their own collection, but then we're benefiting from it all this time later. That's a great way um, to put it. Yeah, it was the Google for the researchers, or for the reporters of the yeah. newspapers. Yeah, that's fantastic. So then that's gonna be like a treasure trove for anything, I guess, to do with pretty much anything. <laughs> now that I think about it, I was thinking just local history, but like those papers would have been covering some international events. They would have been covering um, war and politics and... Um, we, we are keeping it as a local collection, okay. but if Niagara, if a Niagara topic or a person from Niagara is speaking about a national or international okay. story, we maintain those for sure. But if it was something that was just grabbed off of the Canadian press or something like that, it's just so big. We have yeah. to kind of scale it down to what our collection scope is. So as long as that Niagara collection or connection is there, we keep it. Otherwise, uh, it's still going to be in the microfilm, which we have in the library anyways. Yeah, because that's my next question is when you're faced with treasure troves, so to speak, of newspaper articles or rare books or whatever, how you decide what is going to go, what what is going to come here, um, because obviously you can't keep everything. So I imagine this is probably a difficult process, but I imagine you have a you have some criteria and some strategies for it. It's the hardest part of the job is to say no to anything because we love books, we love history, we want to preserve it all. So we do have a policy and when Brock University established its library in 1964, the Archives and Special Collections Department was dedicated to local history. And uh, fortunately, we live in an area where Niagara, it's bigger than just the area. Like uh, a lot of things that happen here have that international, national cachet that uh, allows us to spread our wings a little bit. But as long as it's related to Niagara in some way, we, we can collect it and we make that a priority. But sometimes people have wonderful things that are out of scope to what we collect here. And we feel part of our job as well is to make sure that these are 
protected and find a good home. So we have worked with people in the past to say, Brock might not be the best archive for this, but we have colleagues at other institutions who would be very interested in knowing about this collection. And we've uh, shepherded some things to other institutions that way. So, um, and we've benefited from the same uh, from other archivists all over the place. So it's a nice way to uh, make sure things are preserved. So you're keeping in mind then, we've you know the faculty researchers, the courses they teach, and the things that students might need access to, but then also things that the community might want to, because the community can access the archives, right? Yes, yes. about 35% of our users are outside of Brock University, and uh, a lot do come from the local community. We have people from Australia who come all this way, all that way to use our materials, so it is available for anyone, uh, and. and I said Niagara is connected to so many different ways to the world that if someone is interested in anything, there, you know, there's there's a chance, uh, a very good chance that Niagara has some association with it, and we might be a right institution to visit. So, uh, but yeah, uh, we our doors are open. Our, our job is to make sure that people find what they need, whether they're a student faculty member here or genealogist, uh, author, an artist. We've had them all TV shows uh, write us sometimes to see if they can get a picture for a documentary show. Um, so yeah, we get people from all over. And it's very um, exciting too because you often have stuff that relates to current events or anniversaries. So mm -hmm. last year was the anniversary of the Summit Series and um, you've, you've got some papers and objects, I guess, related to that. Yes, that, that, that was a lot of fun. Uh, so yeah, the 50th anniversary of the Summit Series. So yeah, we do note these things. You know, the, the Bicentennial War of 1812 was about 10 years ago, so we made a big splash with that. So when this hockey anniversary came up, it's we thought, what's in our collections that we can celebrate with that? And we had the Terry O'Malley collection, uh, and he was uh, a legendary person in Canadian advertising, making radio and TV commercials. And his company, Vickers and Benson, was the primary promoters, advertisers for the Summit Series uh, Russia versus Canada games in 1972. And Terry was behind a lot of it. And their company did such good work for the event that Terry was given a jacket, a Team Canada jacket official. And uh, we also have some of the documentation of Vickers and Benson when they were trying to find advertisers for the program. And the really neat historical parts of the story is Vickers and Benson, the people who worked there, they named Team Canada, Team Canada, which is really, really cool because we still use that name today and it seems so simple, but back then, uh, you know, they didn't have a name uh, for something so big and international. So uh, they did that. They designed the iconic uh, uniform with the maple leaf uh, that was done by Terry's company, and you know, 40 years after, at the 40th anniversary of it, uh, the team bestowed Terry with a 40th anniversary um, jersey, hockey jersey. So they're both on display right now to you know note this important time in Canadian history. And, and Terry's collection is a very good way we can show how Niagara connects to the world because Vickers and Benson, its main office was in Toronto, and Terry lived there for much of his career, but he grew up in St. Catharines, and he has a passion and love for St. Catharines. He came back when he retired and still works today, 
and he would get St. Catharines in Niagara area. He'd, he'd push it into the commercials every now and then, whenever he could. So that's uh, one way we can accept collections that are maybe beyond scope of Niagara, but have that little con connection that ties, you know, this area to bigger things, national and international stories. Yeah, and so we, we might think of using archives maybe if we have a specific person or a specific institution, but I know, for example, you worked with Dr. Elizabeth Vlasic's um, sport history class and looking at sport and the history of sport, and you pulled out some very interesting, just little bits and pieces that maybe by themselves might not seem like a lot, but when you start piecing things together, you can start to build a picture of, of sport. I believe there was like a cricket brochure, there was a cycling club, and uh, there was, and I'm blanking out on her name, um, the uh, the female pilot from Welland. Yes, uh, Dorothy Rungeling. Yes, yes, yes. Can you tell us a little bit, because you had a couple of boxes, I think, of her, yeah, her Dor papers. Dorothy was an absolutely amazing woman. Um, she was the first, uh, one of the first Canadian women to get her pilot's license. And in the 1950s, where, you know, I guess traditionally for the times, uh, you know, mothers were meant to stay at home and taking care of the kids and things like that. She was off doing uh, races all over the world, uh, flying planes, doing long distance races and races in other countries. And, you know, she was still raising her family and being a little dynamo she was. And um, she lived to be 106 years old. And we visited her often. And she would just give us things over time, her scrapbooks of all of her flights and newspaper clippings of what she did. And then she wrote four books about growing up in the Pelham area and her mother was a famous Canadian poet, and she had letters back and forth from her mother, and that's all there, too, and her photographs, her family. It's, it's just such a lovely collection, and, you know, she was learning right to the very end, sharp as a tack, um, always doing amazing things. So we feel very fortunate to have that collection and, and seeing the students dive into it when they were looking into the history of sport in this area was a lot of fun. We always try to push Dorothy on students when the opportunity is right because she, her story is so amazing and what she accomplished was great. And yeah, some of the other things for that sport history class, it's like, oh my gosh, we, don't even, we didn't even know we had these records because we can't read everything, but the students dive into the boxes and find something and, and they're happy and we're thrilled that they're finding new things that are exposed to us and you know we, we find more and more as the students are using the materials up there that there's so much discovery that can be done that's really the fun part of the job is uh, sharing and the thrill of doing archival research and uh, seeing the joy on someone's face when they've seen something that probably hasn't been read for a hundred years uh, yeah. that's really cool I still remember the little the little comics that she had drawn oh, like yes. little postcards wonderful so if anybody needs a local history uh, project. <laughs> I do fantastic. recommend that one. It's fantastic. Yes. Yeah. And so that's part, I guess, of archival research is that until you've done it, you might think that you just kind of show up and somebody hands you a folder full of things and you look at them and you make your notes and then you go away. But it's really uh, much more like a scavenger hunt, sometimes very fruitless for a while. <laughs> and then suddenly, you, you know, you, you find, you find a, a new tact. Um, have, have you had any kind of aha moments um, like that with with your work or, or seen that that kind of aha moment? We see it a lot when the students come through uh, for their classes, especially if they come back time after time after time. Uh, you, you, you said it 
write, uh, we call it like detective work. It's not look it up in the table of contents or in the index and you, you find exactly the quote that you need. It is, uh, you need people with patience and tenacity to work in archives. But what comes out of that good work is something new and exciting, uh, something that might be novel to the entire subject that you are going after or it's usually just little clues that lead to the next thing, that lead to the next thing, and, and you need really good researchers to follow that trail. But when you piece it all together, you're writing something unique. It's not just regurgitating something that you found in a book. It's your research. You can own it. And the students who come up there and, you know, we orientate people to how to use the archives and be patient, you know, even not finding something is discovering that it's not there, but I have to look somewhere else. Or that one little clue might lead you to a new folder or a new box or a new collection that uh, might spin off into completing the puzzle that you're trying to solve. So the, the pieces are all spread out and we're there to guide people to different things and certainly shepherd them on the way. But when there is the student that said, oh my God, this is it, this is it. And, and they call us over. And usually you think of an archive or a library as a nice quiet place where no one talks, but we want to celebrate those moments with anyone who finds something that they're excited about. Like that's, that's what gets up in the morning, coming back to work and you know, hoping to make these discovering, discoveries alongside with our researchers. That's, that's the best. So you mentioned Dr. Leah Knight's class, and we have, and I will put some links in the show notes because we have interviewed her, and we've interviewed Dr. Blasik as well. Um, so our listeners may want to uh, to listen to, the, to those episodes. Um, so she teaches medieval and Renaissance um, kind of history of the book, I suppose. I, I I will have to look up the exact <laughs> name of the course, but you bring out a wonderful collection of kind of the highlights of some of those historical pieces. And um, there's a very interesting story around one of them, um, Gerard's Herbal, yes. I believe. You've got two copies of that, and yes. they're not the same. <laughs> yes, that, that was really neat. Uh, so, oh, it must have been about 12 years ago now, a uh, local gentleman uh, just hit his 100th birthday. And he called us up and says, I have this old book. Uh, I, I'd hope Brock would want it. And we're always thrilled when someone says, I have this really old book. So we, we met with them. We, we saw the book. And it's like this herbal history, which is like an encyclopedia of plants. But it was from 1597. And immediately we're like, yes, we want this. <laughs> like, why wouldn't we? And uh, at the time, it was the oldest complete book that we had in our collection. And so, you know, we were just marveling over it. The illustrations are gorgeous, and it really is quite fantastic. And then Leah Knight comes by and she said, I did my PhD on herbals. And she's a, <laughs> she knows this thing inside out. And it's like, oh, my God, the perfect person here for the perfect book. That's great. And then we renovated the space uh, about a year and a half, two years later, and on a shelf, without a cover, all beaten up, was uh, the text block for the second edition to it. So now we have the first and second edition, uh, and they're vastly different because the second edition was done by a different individual. I can't recall his name at the moment, but he took Gerard's uh, book and updated it, made a bunch of corrections because at the time, the new world was just opening up, so new plants were being discovered, and science was uh, really buzzing at the time. So just new knowledge and understanding of plants was happening at the time. So 
now students can come in and look at the differences. Like, how does a book change in 30 years' time? It can change quite a bit uh, you know, as we learn more. So uh, it's always fun to bring out those two books side by side and just say, what do you see inside? Like, what, what, is the, what are the differences? And then the really cool thing about the older book, the 1597, is there's a letter in there. Uh, and it's the donor's father was a gardener. And there's a letter in there where he was taking notes on a book that was 400 years old. And uh, that book was his retirement gift from the family he worked for as a gardener for decades. And then he passed it on to his son and then uh, it came to us at Brock. So I didn't uh, know about the letter. That's really interesting. We, we keep the letter in there because it's a discovery yeah. item for people. Yeah. Yeah. And that speaks to the book as and the, the book and its relationship to people. How many hands did that pass through and how much did people get out of it? Uh, it's, yeah, that one speaks a lot to us whenever we pull it out. I yeah. love that book. And you've also got music. Yes. You've got some songs. It's <laughs> <laughs> a little surprised. Yes, yes, you do. do we? Yes. You've, um, and, and I know that Dr. Brian Powers, when he's taught some of the um, medieval Renaissance era music, has mm-hmm. brought students by to sing yes. some, of the, some of the pieces. And you've got some pages from Bibles. Yes. How do you wind up with just a page oh, from boy. a Bible? <laughs> yes. Uh, it's a funny story, too. Uh, so, the, the, yeah, the medieval music and, and the Bible pages, we're very fortunate to have them. Uh, they're not complete. They're single sheets. Uh, some are written on animal skin. Most are, actually. And they're gorgeous. And what happened, what was very popular in the... 1950s through the 1980s is booksellers would buy these old medieval books, break the spine, and sell these pieces one sheet at a time. So they're destroying a historical artifact to make a little bit more money uh, because they would sell it to tourists who are coming through the areas. And these would end up in people's personal archives. And after they pass away, the kids usually don't know what to do with it. And thankfully, they think of donating it to a university maybe someone would enjoy it and we certainly enjoy it so we have the oldest item in our entire collection is that uh, medieval bible one one page of a medieval bible from about 1200 so an 800 year old manuscript handwritten bible it's a page it's pretty spectacular to look at because it was written by a monk in a scriptorium by candlelight probably you know um, just what you would picture if you're uh, just thinking of how they did things back then. And then we have some other little prayer books, you know, very small, but gorgeously painted, uh, decorated on the sides with, you know, flowery motifs or an image or two with some gold leaf lettering adhered to it. So our medieval collection, it's very small, but it's, it's a showstopper when people mm-hmm. come up to see it. And, you know, having people like Leah Knight and Andrew McDonald and people in the Mars program, they get a lot of attention every, every term we bring those things out because people are shocked with seeing information or something that survived mm-hmm. five, six, seven hundred years or more still intact. And you can read it if you can read Latin, but you can, you know, something's communicated there. And uh, it's an artifact of the time and it's also saying something about the time. It's, it's really, really cool. And it's so valuable to the, to the students to have that opportunity to handle and touch and read and look at here in Niagara, um, this, this handwritten, um, do, you, do you know where, the, where that page was from? 
We believe it's from a French Bible. A French Bible. Yeah. yeah. So just it's, I think it's mind boggling. Yes. Um, and I think it's an awesome opportunity for our students. Now, have you ever been able, because I imagine there's a lot of loose Bible pages floating around <laughs> in archives out there. Have, have you ever been able to match up with another page anywhere? I've tried it twice because thank God for technology. Now we can digitize these things and kind of put it out online. And uh, the Ohio State University, uh, they have a bunch of these uh, broken up uh, works. Uh, and they're trying to digitally put these uh, medieval books back together. And a few of them are Bibles. And anyone from any institution who has it can go in and see if your page or multiple pages match up to what they have. So I've tried it twice and ours don't match up. So we have no <laughs> idea, but the opportunity is there. And unfortunately these books will never be together again, but through technology, we can start to at least digitally put things back together. So we hope more projects like this continue. So when you're matching up, is that is that kind of like you're looking at like nuances in the lettering? And is that something that you're doing by eye or is there a computer program or something like that or artificial intelligence um, yeah. uh, that when does I, that yet? Yeah, the last time <laughs> I did it was probably eight years ago and it was just, oh, is the pagination look like our pagination because it was pretty distinct and is the, you know, they, they measure the lettering and the blocks because mm. it would have been standardized in some way. What's the size of the page? Because if it was bound in a book, the, all the leaves would have been the same size generally. So just those little characteristics of the pages itself is how we determined ours wasn't uh, of the same Bibles that they were putting out there. But uh, I'm sure with uh, someone who's very good at technology, there's probably ways of saying the language is exactly right and, and the layout and everything like that. I haven't seen it yet, but I know there's smart people out there who can probably figure it out. Yeah. So that leads us back to the uh, the earlier bookmark um, hmm. about technology and archives. Mm -hmm. So how has technology changed how we collect things, how we use the things that we collect? Sure. Um, you did mention microfilm earlier, and I imagine, I have never used microfilm, um, so I imagine that's a technology that might not be familiar to all of our listeners. What, what are some of the technologies that are being used now? For sure, yeah. Um, it's funny to think, but microfilm is probably considered a really old technology now, and it was really popular. It's been around for a long time, but uh, it got really popular in the 60s, 70s, and 80s when people had these giant collections of large works like uh, a whole newspaper archive, like 100 years worth of daily newspapers. It's a lot of work to store all that. So what they did was take really, really good pictures of them and shrunk them on film, uh, rolled film, that people can see all you need is a light and a magnifying glass and you can read the newspaper that's 140 years old or something like that. So those were big projects in the 1970s and 80s that really happened because a lot of those newspapers were thrown out after their, the microfilming was done because mm -hmm. they just take up so much storage space and newspapers were never meant to survive for hundreds of years. It's they're they're it's very acidic paper and paper. degrade very quickly. Yes, the paper is awful. They flake after probably 50, 60 years and as chemical manufacturing of paper progressed, it got more and more chemical and they last less and less. A, a newspaper from 200 years ago would last 20 times as long as a newspaper made really? today uh, just because of the amount of chemicals in the paper itself. 
So microfilm was the way to solve the space problem. And we have a microfilm reader up in the, in the special collections and archives, and it has a scanner on it too. So if someone wants to just scan uh, the newspaper rolls for the time period that they're interested in, they can walk away with the scans and look at it on your computer at home. Oh, so access-wise, that is absolutely wonderful. And we know that microfilm can last 250, 300 years. And like I said, a newspaper might not last 50 if it's in the wrong conditions. So that's a really neat technology that is going to stick around in, archive, in the archives world uh, at least for a long time because we really do appreciate what it brings and then other things, uh, just scanning and digitizing materials. Uh, we have someone in the archives whose job is to make sure people have access to these things online. And uh, she's fantastic at her work, Shauna uh, Riberic. She uh, does this every day and she uh, you know, scans. And then she edits the scan, describes it, puts it up in their digital repository for people all over the world to find. And we know they do because we get comments about it all the time. And... It's a fantastic way, di uh, yeah, the technology is a fantastic way to make archives accessible to people who might not be able to travel all the way to Brock to see what we have. So that opens doors and it, and it invites new researchers to say, oh, this is a, something I'm interested in. Maybe I should come and visit Brock and see what else they have because this is right in line with what I want. But the downside of it is it takes a lot of time to digitize things uh, in an archive because, you know, some of the boxes have thousands of pieces of paper in it and you know, it takes Shauna eight to 12 minutes to do all the work on a single piece of paper, depending on what the needs are. So, you know, we can do a lot of work getting these things up online, but it's never going to be a complete collection. You'll never find everything online. We've, we've been doing it for 15 years and we probably have less than 1% of our collection up online. Uh, you know, but it's just a starting point to any kind of uh, research, but we know it helps people to have the really key things that we think people are interested in we try to get that up online yeah. save some travel and now the the thing now is people aren't writing on paper anymore we everything's digital uh all the time so we have to figure out ways of preserving digital records which the philosophy and theory of it all is the same because it's just information just like any information recorded five thousand years ago you just work to preserve it but it, the technique and, and ways of doing it is different so and the quantity I imagine because I I don't know about about your cell phone camera but <laughs> mine uh, <laughs> mine's got a lot of a lot of photos and a lot of data in there so yes. we're producing a huge amount so you know it's it's easy to just kind of like you know keep sticking stuff on an external hard drive but then if somebody has to go through that at some point yeah. and figure out what it is and what's useful it's, it's really changed the whole archival profession and just, uh, like you said, in, in the volume that we have to deal with. So it's something we're writing new procedures on how to do it. And we have some software up there that allows us to preserve digital files, hopefully for 100, 200 years, like we do everything else. But it's uh, much more time consuming. It's much more expensive because we have to pay for storage space to put all these new files. We have to pay for the software that converts everything to a readable uh, format? software format yeah. because software changes so frequently. And how do you read something that was print, uh, that was typed out on WordPerfect in 1995? Like that, you know, the software doesn't exist anymore. So you have to 
always be moving it forward. Every mm -hmm. five years, you should be touching these records and making sure that they're still readable and still accessible in its digital format. So it's a it's a big problem. All archivists are trying to figure out, but the, the newer generations of people coming into this profession, uh, profession are so tech savvy. Uh, it's getting better and better every year, the tools we have to take care of it. So it's not uh, it's not just the time and the expense of digitizing the original item. You have to keep doing that, but then you also have to keep revisiting things that have been digitized to make sure that they're still accessible. Yes. And 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 I, and I imagine you've got people in your field who who probably devote themselves to that forward thinking and of where where are we going to go, what kind of format. Um, I mean, even just thinking about like the quality of a digital camera. Um, and how dramatically that's changed in the past 10 or 15 years. Um, so then, you know, if you scan something 15 years ago <laughs> compared to what you could scan it for now, there, that's going to be a big difference, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I remember the first digital camera I ever saw was probably in 1999. And it was a camera with a floppy disk drive on oh, it wow. with a 1.44 megabyte storage. And... I, I've looked at it because it, it was a JPEG. I, I've looked at the image, and it's probably the size of a thumbnail. But mm -hmm. that's as big as they got back then. But that's the photo. Yeah. Like, that's the only existing photo taken at that time with that digital camera. And this was this was at the Johnson Space Center. This is high-end <laughs> tech. So, um, yeah, it, it's, yeah, every, the, the advances every eight to ten years is amazing. And, yeah, we could go back and digitize everything all over again and do a much better job. But you'd still be out of date in five or ten years. Yeah, so <laughs> there's no catching up. Uh, there's no shortage of work either, yeah. so that's the best part about it. Uh, there's always something to do up in the archives. Uh, and, yeah, just know that we're trying our best at all times to keep <laughs> up with it all. So it sounds like a great career choice because there will, there will be plenty of work, both as institutions and specifically our, our institution here continues to collect information, um, but then also digitizing that and making that more accessible. So you mentioned the Johnson Space Center. Mm -hmm. um, you have an interesting story <laughs> of how you came to be on the on the tenth uh, floor of Schmond Tower. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you, how you got into archival studies? Oh sure, yeah. It's it's weird because I never wanted to work in archives as a history major and doing my undergrad. I had to go kicking and screaming in my fourth year final semester. Professor just said, you must do primary research. You can't, can't just keep looking things up in the indexes and finding what your sources are. You have to do original research. So I went in there and it changed my whole path of life. I, I, you know, I, I fell in love with it immediately. I was looking at someone's diary from the 1870s and who, I know, she was, uh, she liked this person, but this other person was courting her and it was just, it was really eye-opening on what you can find in an archive and, and to know that someone's whole job is to take care of this stuff. This is fantastic. I always thought I'd be a high school teacher, but once my eyes opened up to archives, I, I knew that was going to be it. So very fortunately, I was able to do my master's in archival studies. And even before I graduated, a job position came up in Houston, Texas at the Johnson Space Center. And I just threw my name in the ring, and I was willing to work really cheap. <laughs> I think that's why they picked me, but uh, fortunately, it all worked out, and I, I worked five years at the Johnson Space Center working in the image archives, uh, seeing original photography taken from space, working with astronauts and that other people at the Johnson Space Center. It was, it was the most fun thing ever, and 
you know, coming from an institution like uh, University of Waterloo, where I did my undergrad, you know, there's a lot of engineers there. And, you know, this historian is the first person in my class to work at NASA, <laughs> not, <laughs> not, not the engineers. I like so, that. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I lived with a lot of engineers, so I always yeah. like bringing that up when we get back together. But, uh, yeah, it was a wonderful time uh, to work, and, and it allowed me to grow in the profession of archives and to see how an archives can fit into a larger organization because, you know, there was the photo archive where I worked. There was a film archive, which was just the building next door. There was the PR office that when people asked for photos and things from the Apollo missions or the recent shuttle materials or the International Space Station, which was being built at the time, it all runs through PR. So we're working with them quite a bit. And then documentary filmmakers and, you know, uh, movies were being shot on site like it was just so it was a fun time uh, to work and, and and discover what archives can really be and being part of a bigger institution set me up for this job really and I had great people to follow and learn the profession from there and then you also spent some time up in Grey Bruce mm-hmm. yes uh, so after five years of being in Texas uh, we started our family and my wife's from Ontario too we wanted to get back home and uh, we found I found a job at the Bruce County Museum and Cultural Center in Southampton, Ontario, uh, working on the archives there. And they were renovating the entire space, uh, doing all new exhibits throughout the museum. So I got there at a beautiful time where I can set up the archive the way I think it should be and work with exhibit design and, you know, again, see how archival records can tell the history of the community and, uh, you know, learning to manage an archive for the first time. Um, so that was a good three-year experience. And then the opportunity came to come to Brock, and I would never turn back uh, from there. Like, this is the best I think I can ever do in this profession. I, I love being here. I love seeing the students every year, new people coming in and seeing the archives for the first time, the thrill of it. And then getting to know students over the years, uh, students who keep coming back, you, you see them in their first year coming into the archives for the first time, you know, scared to even touch a book. And then by the time they're in their fourth year or doing graduate work, they're, you know, your best friends, they come in and they chat with you and talk about what they're researching and you can brainstorm with them and help them, help guide them to what they need uh, as they want to move forward in their academics. So this is the, the, you know, I've had great jobs, but this is the best job I've ever had. You still get to do a bit of that teaching that you that yes. you wanted to do way back when. Exactly, and I don't have to mark anything, <laughs> so that's the best part. <laughs> and I should mention as well um, that the archives also holds Brock's history, Brock University's history as well. Yes, uh, because we have the best security and environment for records uh, in the building. Uh, we also have university records up there, so if anyone's interested in the history of the university it's a great place to start. We have all the publications that Brock has put out, like course calendars and view books and yearbooks. In the rare years, we actually do yearbooks around here. And newsletters. I know that mm-hmm. that you have helped me from time to time when I've been doing a, p- a piece about retirements or whatever that... Uh, looking through through kind of the, I mean, it was obviously the pre-internet days, the university newsletter that would circulate to let people know what was going on in the university. And there's some really interesting tidbits in those kinds of things that, that, that give you a glimpse into the life and the growth of the university. We have a fantastic history here, and, and those newsletters and, and, and other documents that we have up there tell the history. And 
whether it's just, oh, I need this little bit at a time or I'm looking at this broader story and how it all developed. It's all up there. So it's a lot of fun. And, you know, you, it, you can do the history. And we also have the photograph collection yeah. that can kind of visually show the history at the same time. So lots of good stuff up there. So, yeah, we're, we're, we're a three-headed monster up there. We have the book collection, the archival collection, and the university archives. So yeah. it, keep, it keeps us hopping. Well, I'll put a link in the footnotes to a story that just came out last week, I think, yeah. um, at time of recording, about the artist Michael Snow, um, yes. who just recently passed away. And um, Brock is home to some custom original pieces um, that, that Michael Snow created specifically for Brock. And you and I was able to email you, and you were able to, to send me over a selection of of photos um, from when those pieces were new. And that's just really neat to see. And it's, yeah. it's neat to see them today as well, still there, and to see that kind of that continuity of history. And I think you, pick, you picked the best picture. I, I was <laughs> the one I was hoping you'd pick. So okay. that was great. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will definitely put a link in there. Yeah, excellent. Um, so what's your advice? If somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, oh, this sounds really interesting. I want to learn more about this as a potential career. Okay. Um, kind of what's, what's involved these days in becoming an archivist? Sure. Uh, one, you just have to be a person who loves attention to detail, loves to be organized, because that's a lot of the work is is finding that order and making sure things are in the right spot. So if you have that passion for history or, or order, bringing order from chaos, the good thing is you don't have to be in history or English or anything else. There, there's archivists who come from all branches of learning, but usually you have to do grad work. Uh, there's graduate programs either through library schools or there are a few very specific archival programs at UBC uh, has an archival master's um, University of Manitoba has a master's of history with an archive specialization now and you know the schools are out there but when you get into it, it you can see how it's its own profession on its own it, it's it's uh, a great friend to the library world, a great friend to the museum world, but it's its own unique thing in the way we do uh, our work. So it's a great path for anyone who's interested in history or documents or now technology uh, dealing with digital records. Uh, a lot of the new young people that are coming in, they're, they're software uh, programmers. Uh, you know, they can write the code that saves these records for years and years or, you know, write the programs that allows us to get the right metadata and, you know, make sure all the digital copies we have are still intact. Uh, so years from now. So we need a lot of people in the profession. And, you know, if it sounds like something you want to get into, I would advise anyone to just go to their local archives and just ask, what does it take to do this? Uh, probe those questions, see if there's a volunteer opportunity you know, to work in the archive. We, we have students, yeah, ever since I've been here, there's probably been about 10 students who's volunteered up in the archives and spun it off into a profession now. And we try to support those people as much as possible, even if you can give us two hours a week. There's always work that we need help with. So, um, yeah, come see us, and we'll walk you through it uh, as best we can and point you in the right directions. But it's a fantastic profession. And you don't have to work at a university with it. Obviously, no. there's uh, public archives. And then it sounds like there's large companies or organizations that keep their own archives of their own history. There Absolutely. Well. That, that This job came up in the summer. And I, I joked with my family that I'm going to go for this. But the, the WWE World Wrestling Entertainment 
had a job posting nationally for an archivist for their entire history of their sports, and sports entertainment company. Yeah. And, you know, you, you can do that. Coca-Cola has an archivist who deals with the corporate records but also manages the museum of all the stuff Coca-Cola has produced over 100 years. Uh, yeah, there's records everywhere, and a lot of people don't really see it until they need it. And our job is to be there when the need arises. And that's kind of the, the nice thing because we know we're supporting good work whenever we're working with people. Definitely. And one final question then, um, although I could continue this conversation for a while, I, I, I always enjoy hearing, hearing about what's up um, in the world of archives and special collections. But um, let's say we've got a student listening or a member of the, of the public who's kind of curious but is maybe not quite sure about this whole archive thing. Um, I know that you're a great team up there and very welcoming. So what, what, what kind of encouragement or support <laughs> can you give a first time to somebody coming for the first time? Maybe they've got you know, a specific thing that they want to look up and sure. they're not quite sure what they're doing. Because it, it, it is different from just going into a library where you can pull things off, off the shelf. Yeah, thanks for noting that. Yes, uh, none of the materials in the archives circulate. You have to actually physically come here to look at the materials we have. And that's a lot due to the value or rarity of the materials up there. If something goes missing, it might be the only copy left, uh, or we know it's the only copy in existence. So if if it's borrowed and destroyed or never comes back, it's gone forever. So nothing circulates, we, we, it's protected that way. But w the first thing I'd say is don't be shy about coming to use us. Uh, you know, uh, that's the best thing. Uh, and then start with looking through the catalog. Um, luckily, if you do any kind of library search in the, the library catalog, the archives is a department within the library and you keyword search in there, you can find things in the archive as well. Uh, and within, if you just wanna specifically search the archives, we have our own uh, search uh, in the library catalog just of our department. So you don't get all the other materials in the library, which are millions. So if you search in the catalog first, just uh, come with a couple call numbers and, and titles of materials that you wanna see. Uh, that's always good because uh, the example I like to use is we have people coming in saying, I wanna see your War of 1812 collection. And it's like, oh, we have 10,000 things on the War of 1812 up here. What do you really want? Oh, I'm interested in the Battle of Lundy's Lane. Okay, that narrows it down to maybe 50 items uh, that can really help you out. So of those 50 items, what's the top? 10 things that you want to see today and then if you get through those 10 things we'll bring out the next 10 and we'll bring out the next 10 so come a little bit prepared um just coming in fresh off the street and just saying i want to see this well it will certainly help you point you in the right directions but the better prepared you are when you arrive the more efficient your time is spent uh so that's what we advise also it's good to write ahead and ask if we're open during the times you want to come because we do host classes in there weekly or other events so if something's going on in the archives we're kind of close to researchers at the time because the students come first and, so it, and it is a it's a beautiful space but it is limited <laughs> yes it, it, yeah. it is small i think uh 16 is comfortable 20 is squeezing people in yeah. so when there's a class in there it gets very crowded especially if we're pulling out materials for the class uh, so uh, write us ahead at archives at brocku.ca and just say, I'd like to come in Tuesday at 10 o'clock. Is that okay? And these are some of the materials I'd like to see. And that's where it begins. And, you know, we hope to see people come back over and over again because I think to do good work, you have to visit yeah. us multiple times. <laughs> 
And a few practicalities as well. I believe you're a big fan of pencils. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, pencils only. Uh, so that's And wash your hands before you come because we yes. don't use white gloves anymore. Not for books and paper materials. Yeah. It's better to just have clean hands uh, and to turn the pages and everything like that. If you are handling photographs or negatives, uh, we will bring out the good old white gloves uh so because your fingerprints can get into the uh, emulsion and once the oils are in there it just eats away the foil for and you can never get that back so there, there are some things the white gloves come out for but typically it's just have clean hands uh, no um, lotions or don't eat a messy peanut butter sandwich before you uh, come to the archives um, and the other thing is is uh, you know bring a camera you can take pictures of the materials if we don't have it digitized already feel free to snap some pictures and leave with it as long as copyright's okay and stuff like that but if it's for your private study you're welcome to take pictures and, and leave with the, the information because sometimes you don't have enough time to read everything while you're there but snap a bunch of pictures and read it at home on a bigger screen that's that's fine too. That's perhaps in some ways the uh, the one tech technological tool that has has changed the way we use use f these facilities the most is that now we can just capture the image and have it have it in our pocket <laughs> literally. We, we have a photocopier in the room that barely gets used anymore yeah. because no one makes photocopies anymore. It, it's uh, and it, and that helps with the preservation of the materials too. Where we're fine with people snapping a picture because mm -hmm. putting it on a photocopier can be harsh on some of the materials we have. Yeah. So actually, I'm going to have one one last oh, question. Um, keep going. Uh, <laughs> so we've we, we've been talking um, about technology and and of course just now just taking taking pictures that you can take home. But what is the value in coming to see the actual physical thing? Sure. Why do we want to preserve that and not just oh we've digitized it? Let's mm -hmm. let's not worry about the original. For sure, uh, there is the possibility that. If you do something digitally that you can lose it uh, we, we've all had a file that's failed a digital file that's failed and it's like can never get this thing back no matter what we do so keeping the original is good because we can scan it again if necessary to uh, sometimes um, you know there's more information to be found on the original or if you saw a copy of it somewhere else our copy might be slightly different or someone might have written something in the margin that just opens up your mind to something else. We see that in a lot of our older books that have been around and been used for generations. It's like, oh, someone wrote a note on the side. That's exactly what I think. I, th I you know, I'm going to pursue this idea a little bit further. No, no two copies of, of a lot of books are really the same. And then you're actually seeing what what else is in the file. Like if you see it online, it's just might be one piece of paper in a folder of 80 pages. And we just selected that as something that's interesting uh, and it tells what's in the file folder or it represents the collection, but it's not the full story for sure. So if you're looking at a file of correspondence and, and you see something online and, oh, that's really interesting. A as an example, we have the city clerk of St. Catherine's records up at here and there's a letter from 1941 where the coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs is writing the mayor of St. Catharines saying, we wanna have our um, summer fitness camp here in St. Catharines, you know, getting ready for the season. And he lists all the things that he wants. He wanted the players to have free access to the golf course, a uh, trainer at the YMCA to do exercises in the morning, uh, a stipend for food and everything like that. And 
that's what we put up online, that one letter, because it's really cool. It's written by a famous, uh, I think it was Hap Day, coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs. But what we didn't digitize is the follow-up letter, what the mayor responded, and then the back and forth. And then there's other letters in there because they returned year after year after year for a while. They did all their training camps in St. Catharines for a time, and they won the Stanley Cup that year too in 1941. <laughs> so they should come back. Um, but, uh, you know, again, we can't digitize it all. Uh, it would just, there's not enough time, uh, mm-hmm. absolutely not enough time. But to, to follow up and do that thorough research, you got to come here and actually see it and dig a little bit further because there is always more behind what you see online. And sometimes the thing you think you want, it's actually the thing next to it. Yes. I've had that happen so many times just in the library where I go for the, the book, but it's actually the one <laughs> <laughs> with, a, with a completely different title exactly. that I just had passed by online. Well, we've had people yeah. change their entire thesis based on what they saw, in, in, not, not what they expected to see, but what was in the file next. And it's like, oh my God, this, I thought this was a story, but this is saying something different. And, and then their, their thesis or their paper is much better for it because you've uncovered something new. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And I hope some of our listeners will take you up on your invitation and um, check out the archives and see what you have to offer, whatever what, whatever their subject of research subject of, of, of choice is. And I'm certainly looking forward to more visits um, with classes up there because I always see something new and, uh, um, see, of course, seeing people's reactions to things and the opportunity to hold touch um, some of these these pieces of history as well so thank you very much for the work that you are doing up there and uh, the support that you give our researchers and uh, thanks for your time today oh thank you it's a treat thank you for listening to forward find our footnotes links to more information transcripts and past episodes on our website brockuca humanities We love to hear from our listeners, so join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Allison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Sound editing is by Serena Attella, and theme music is by Khaled Amam. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. (laughs) 